Hello and welcome to APAC Weekly, where we bring you a showcase of our conversations on the APAC network. I'm Oriel Morrison. Coming up this week, can Asia maintain economic growth and avoid environmental damage? A vision for defence in space and why Malaysia is a sustainability leader. While pollution, whether it's water, air or waste, is a direct consequence of global growth, it also has a very real and significant economic impact. In worst case scenarios, pollution poses systemic economic risks on a global level. Well, joining us now to talk about the relationship between economic growth and environmental pollution is Curtis Chin, former US ambassador to the Asian Development Bank and the chair of the Milken Institute Asia Centre. Curtis, welcome. Now, can countries decouple economic growth and environmental pollution? And if yes, how? You know, I'm going to have to say in the short term, I'm going to say no. Um, the reality is when we think about uh, countries' growth, um, a key part of that, let's say, is access to electricity, access to power. Um, and in the near term for so many countries, you know, particularly poor developing countries, uh, sometimes what's available is the cheaper way to generate power, uh, which too often, sadly, is the more polluting uh, version. So indeed, as countries get richer, we often see that they, they take the steps to address some of those terrible uh, uh, environmental consequences of economic development. But I'd say for the poor countries, unless, and this is the big unless, unless other countries, uh, unless uh, new ways of financing, you know, uh, are stepped up, um, countries will do what they need to do uh, to help their people to get power. So it's a tough one uh, to, to disconnect, to decouple uh, in the short term. And along the way, there's some mistakes that have been made. I know that you've spent some time looking at Sri Lanka and the mistakes that the country made when it tried to green its agriculture industry. What happened there? Yeah, I mean, uh, sadly, a fascinating story of almost like the perfect storm. Uh, bad policy decisions, uh, the pandemic that shut down tourism. Um, but what you asked about focuses on a, a very, you know, almost intriguing uh, philosophical point, should a country go organic? Um, and so a policy decision, the government in Sri Lanka, former government decided uh, to effectively ban uh, chemical fertilizers, which you might think, oh, that's a great thing. But the reality, the transition was not thought through. Um, and one result was that agricultural yields plummeted. Um, hunger has risen in this beautiful nation of uh, Sri Lanka. And so I, I think that question you ask is, is an important one because it raises the issue of transition. So indeed, it might be better if we were all eating more organic foods, but it's hard to provide every single citizen organic food given the higher cost. It might be great if we all were using green energy, uh, let's say, but the reality in so much of the Asia region, so much of Africa also, there are literally millions of people that don't have access to electricity. We might take it for granted, but I think we have to recognize that countries uh, still need to develop in many parts of the world, and that might include uh, approaches that unfortunately will have some very near-term environmental consequences. So if we don't like them, let's step up and think through how do we assist these uh, nations? Is there financing assistance when it comes to, say, climate-related uh, financing? Or do we work with them to encourage policy changes, for example, uh, that it's easier to get uh, access to capital? So for some of the things that will help them move forward, both economically uh, and environmentally. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. How do we get past that barrier, economically speaking, when there are countries where the governments can't afford to implement those stronger environmental regulations? You know, some of it, it's going to be, you know, uh, it's a tough one, 
but really thinking through how do we work across borders. Uh, so one approach, of course, is the, you know, the uh, multilateral development banks, right? with something called the Asian Development Bank. They need to also step up and think through how do they provide the financing, uh, that access to capital uh, that will help countries transition, but bring it down to the micro level. How do we help individual companies move forward? I can't say that I don't know any country that, or any company that says, yeah, I just want to pollute. But there is that balance. How do they make a, a fair return if you're a private sector a company? How do I provide jobs and opportunities and power to all my citizens if I'm running a country? So I think that's the balance. And I think people need to step up. Institutions need to step up. You know, for me, you know, I'm with this think tank called the, the Milken Institute, where we recognize it's also about policy changes that are so critical to help companies, to help countries get the access to capital that will help them move forward. So what needs to happen to kind of tip that balance? Is there one person who's going to lead the way or one company or one government who's going to lead the way and, and push it in the right direction? You know, I, uh, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be any one person or company. But you do, uh, in a way, raise an important point, the value of leadership. Uh, so whether you're the leader of a company or a country, you need to put forth uh, the way forward uh, for people. So, you know, so let's bring it down to a specific, let's say, policy change. Uh, countries, particularly in the Asia-Pacific region, you know, it's a diversity of nations out here, uh, need to think through and address these critical long-term issues, for example, of corruption and governance. You know, what are the, the disincentives that are there that we need to remove uh, in terms of addressing uh, these key challenges? You know, we need to think about not just always more regulation, fair uh, and equal in enforcement of existing regulation. One other area we might need to think through is how do we take lessons from small pilot projects that are already happening? One example could be a waste to energy uh, plant in Thailand or Indonesia or elsewhere that thinks through not just the energy challenge, uh, but also the tremendous waste challenge, the garbage in uh, the Pacific Ocean uh, that countries also face. And so there the point is we need to think holistically. Things need not to be not just in a silo. So even when I think about climate finance, it cannot just be in a silo related to, to someone's vision of climate. We need to think about issues like waste. We need to think about uh, job opportunities for individuals. So to break down those barriers, you know, climate finance will not succeed uh, and be sustainable if it's all about siloed uh, investments. While the term greenwashing has been around for some time, there's a new buzzword being used more frequently, green hushing. This is when companies say very little about their sustainability work because of concerns they could get called out for greenwashing or they're doing very little to address their carbon footprint. In Malaysia, for example, companies are facing increasing scrutiny over their claims around sustainability practices, with some foregoing huge revenues if they're found to be misleading. Brian Fernandez joins us now from Kuala Lumpur. Brian, welcome. Asia is generally lagging behind the rest of the world when it comes to ESG reporting. How much work is there to be done? Malaysia perhaps has been a little bit of a naughty boy in the past. In, in terms of its sustainability efforts, uh, report card has not been good. But the reality is uh, a country like Malaysia has taken deep strides over the last two or three years. Now, for example, it is now mandatory for all companies on the stock exchange 
to have ESG reporting in their, in their annual reports. Now, that's an initiative from Bursa Malaysia, which is the, the, the stock exchange of Malaysia, ironically run by an Aussie. And so at, 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 a, at, a, at that level, Malaysia has, at a large company level, taken very huge strides in terms of improving its ESG uh, credibility and also actual real work that's being done. Is that in response to green hushing or is that because they're trying to kind of be at the forefront of it? I think, okay, there's a couple of drivers around that. When you've been a naughty boy and you want to reform, you tend to do a little bit more. And I think Malaysia has gone up the curve compared to other countries in the region in doing more. So that's that's one aspect of it. The green hushing part is actually a very, very good point because if you look at the sustainability efforts of a lot of large Malaysian companies, they've actually done very, very well. The report card is very good, but they are very cognizant of being called out for green hushing. Uh, and that's why perhaps the story is not told as well. Mm, the companies have been globally pretty quick to make bold proclamations about their sustainability goals, but surely 2023 now, it needs to be more about action, right? What's happening in your part of the world? Okay, so I think action has been has been really uh, driven by a couple of things. Now, when you talk about sustainability, and I've said this for years, when the whole buzzword started, I said the only time when businesses will start to make real sense of this and really take action is, is when the dollars and cents add up. And the dollars and cents have started to add up. So why is that? There's a couple of things. One, in a, in a, and a, let's look at an Asia-Pacific and then a Malaysian context, it's about complying with your customers' needs. So in other words, if I want to keep the business of, I'm in the supply chain of a large company, if I want to keep that business, I need to comply. And so that's the reason why I, I then put my ESG efforts in the forefront to retain my customers. The other thing is then it is profitable for me to then go and look at new customers. And so that's another thing where I then trumpet and, and get myself ESG certified and so forth. And you only look, need to look at an example of a company in Malaysia that lost 80% of its business from Dyson uh, in 2021 because it was not in compliance with Dyson's ESG standards. So how, how did so that come about then? Is there the regulation in the area? Is that, is that happening quickly then? Are people being picked up for, for making misleading claims faster than in other parts of the world? So I think, I think then, as I said, because if you're in a global company's supply chain like Dyson's, their shareholders in, in their home listed entities and in their own boards are putting pressure on them to make sure that their whole supply chain is compliant. So this is where then the ESG efforts in a place like Malaysia is probably ahead of the curve because we are a trading nation in Malaysia. And in order to comply, Everyone's basically upping their game. And how they're doing that is they're engaging with different stakeholders. So Bursa Malaysia, the listed companies, so the 900 plus listed companies have a framework to follow. Now, the UN Global Compact uh, Network in Malaysia is also active. They've, in fact, two weeks ago just opened their new SME trading center to help SMEs get compliant. And so at a... At that level, at an NGO level, there is also help to get smaller companies 
more compliant. And there is also at a government level an understanding that, hey, we are a trading nation. We need to get all our companies ready. Are you seeing consumers driving this as well? Are consumers in Malaysia more aware and, and more focused on, on companies who are, who are kind of keeping up these standards? Okay, so the honest answer is no. The honest answer is the consumer in the West is, is probably driving that. Yes, there are young people who want to be associated with companies that are doing the right things. But if, uh, to be honest, if you ask me, is there a push from consumers as there is, let's say, in the Netherlands or in Germany? No, there isn't. By anyone's measure, the geopolitical power balance we've known for the past five decades is starting to shift. While none of us can predict what it will look like by 2050, we do know that space will be one of the most keenly contested diplomatic and strategic battlegrounds as part of the ultimate endgame. This makes a vision for defence in space during the pivotal years ahead a bedrock for strategic policymakers everywhere. Mike Carms is lead partner defence and space industry at KPMG, and he's here to talk us through this incredibly high stakes game that will ultimately shape the future of global power. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Thanks for having me. Well, in your report developed in partnership with the Space Foundation, the position was that space will define the future of national security. Can you unpack why this was such a resounding conclusion? It's... um. It's in part, uh, I think, a statement around the the move of many parts of our defence and national security infrastructure into space, quite frankly. This has for a long time been uh, a world that's been dominated by government interests, largely for exploration. But uh, since the 1960s and particularly now in the, 19, in the, in the uh, 2020s, we're seeing a, a, a real growth in the number of assets that circle above our heads uh, that uh, conduct uh, national security and defence missions. And at the same time, and I think this is the interesting thing, we're seeing industry start to get involved as well as uh, government and academic interest. And it's really the combination of those three areas. How does these communities come together uh, harmoniously, I hope, to deliver on uh, all of our expectations, high expectations around space in the future? Well, it is an intriguing area, but how do new technologies, including artificial intelligence, AI, play into where this is all heading? They're enormously important. Uh, I, I think the, the technologies that we'll see deployed uh, in the next 18 to 24 months on the moon, where we'll see uh, four teams of uh, humans like you and I, not uh, as you might expect, sort of ex-fighter pilots, but relatively normal people uh, going and living on the moon for a month at a time. And the technologies they'll use to build accommodation, to run the environments, uh, to control the the vehicles that get them to and from the moon are largely drawing on the sorts of technology you just spoke about. Artificial intelligence, some of the, the, the quantum computing uh, that we uh, know is starting to emerge will be part of the experiments and indeed the lifestyle, lifestyle of the people that uh, live and operate on the moon in the future. Well, obviously, space exploration is a high cost and scientifically resource heavy undertaking. Are alliances uh, critical to success or will the current military superpowers go it alone, aiming to claim sovereignty in space? Well, this is the big question. And, and I think uh, for the, since the 1960s, when we described space as a commons and an area where 
much like the exploration period as we moved out of Europe, if you like, that there was a sense that nations would both collaborate and compete at the same time. I think we're saying, seeing a similar style of um, uh, community interaction today. I'm really hopeful, and I hope um, others on this uh, who are watching this are hopeful, that the sort of collaboration we've seen between uh, Russia, Europe and America on the International Space Station and elsewhere, that kind of um, working in a collaborative, not self-interested way will continue on. There's lots of pressures for that not to occur. I think you're right to be cautious about it. Others should be as well. But this space is a, an area where we've typically seen those national interests, at least uh, in that domain, put to one side for the interests of safety, for the interests of uh, exploration and for the interests of science. And I think there's still every chance that we'll see that, even though I'm sure you'll point out there are lots of counter um, cyclical activities going on in, on the planet at the moment. Well, let's talk about Asia Pacific's role in this. What do you see as the future for the Asia Pacific in this uh, race, this space race, this exploration? China is clearly a lead player, but Japan, Korea Republic, Malaysia, Indonesia, even Australia, where do we all fit into this evolving story? Well, well, we all fit. I think that's the first thing to say. The the way these nations are coming together, again, through that collaborative rather than self-interest lens, I think is still really encouraging. And I'm really encouraged by the role of Australia, uh, New Zealand, some of the nations you spoke about, Indonesia, Japan. Uh, Australia, I hope, will have two to three uh, launch facilities operating in the north and to the south of our continent. I think there'll be a myriad of satellite providers who build microsats through to larger satellites and who who uh, launch those through those Australian uh, launch assets. And I think there'll be a plethora of space service companies who service our mining, our uh, agriculture and other industries. This is a really exciting time. And I do think that there's a, a role for Australia, for New Zealand, alongside China, Japan and other players. There's certainly enough demand for all of us to get a piece. And of course, there opens up a lot of uh, possibilities when it comes to employment. So how do nations develop a future workforce to cater for this massive industry that's about to emerge and where and how does the timeline start? Sure. Well, uh, they start, as, as Australia has, albeit a little late, by creating a space agency. We did that uh, about three years ago now and that's become a real lightning rod for industry, for academia and for other parts of government to start to invest more heavily. At the moment, still a lot of the space investment comes through defence departments, that is true, but that's changing slowly. The universities are getting involved, uh, I'm really excited about um, some of the commercial businesses like Fleet and Mariota, who are building some really substantial businesses, some fantastic offerings uh, to broader industry. And I think you're going to see uh, a move away from government being the principal provider of capital and cash into the space industry and start to see more of a venture capital and um, private um, funding become the vehicle for the next generation of space businesses. And I guess that's starting already. We've seen that happen in the last few years with uh, you know, private companies getting involved with this. Well, there's some, some notable ones, aren't there? I mean, you're probably thinking about SpaceX and uh, some of the, the uh, billionaires who are getting into space in the US. It may be not in the same number of zeros, but it's certainly being replicated in Australia where you're seeing uh, private capital uh, underwrite uh, these new space startups. Really exciting time uh, and, and so exciting for a different generation of entrepreneur too. It's, it's interesting to observe when you go to the conferences, I'm, I'm sure you will, you see 25-year-olds uh, who are not just talking about space, they are building uh, space stations, they are creating a space services. They are really, it's far more advanced than I, I think many of our listeners would expect.
The World Health Organization is calling for urgent action to tackle the increasing death toll caused by air pollution, with 90% of the global population exposed to hazardous levels. Research co-led by the University of Queensland and Carnegie Mellon University has found that sharing real-time air quality readings in developing countries can help by reducing air pollution and leading to lower mortality rates. Andrea Lanoz, lecturer at the University of Queensland School of Economics, joins us now. Andrea, great to have you with us today. Now, this research was essentially sparked by a U.S. embassy in Beijing that started tweeting about live air quality updates back in 2008. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So the U.S. embassy installed a pollution monitor at their embassy in Beijing and started providing that information publicly via Twitter. And that was some of the first information that was publicly available for citizens and visitors to the city at the time. Now, now you've looked at 36 countries to analyse the data, which seems to show that it's all about increasing local public interest. So that's our hypothesised mechanism. So we look at pollution measurements using satellite-derived estimates, both before and after a US embassy in a city started tweeting out real-time air quality readings. But we also go and look for supporting evidence for what's behind that effect by looking at Google Trends. So what we show is just as we see a decrease in pollution in cities with a US embassy monitor, we see a dramatic increase in the number of Google searches for terms like air quality monitoring or air pollution. And so that's consistent with people being more attentive to air pollution in those locations and that there being a lot more attention by um, politicians and presumably a whole lot of pressure to actually address air quality issues. Mm. Now, how did these kind of results that you've just been discussing compare to the other non-OECD countries without the embassy monitors? Yeah, so actually our estimates are based on that comparison. So as I say, we use satellite measures of pollution in the cities that receive a monitor. We compare pollution before versus after the monitor was installed and the US embassy started tweeting. We compare that change to changes in pollution in similar cities that didn't receive a monitor over the same period of time. Mm -hmm. So we actually find that there's a reduction in comparison to those other cities. Now clearly reducing air pollution is going to save lives. It's also got to, as a result, have a significant impact in terms of national healthcare budgets. How much research has been done into that? I think that's a really interesting question and it's certainly a very important one for governments who are considering reducing pollution and improving air quality standards. It's not something that we look at in this paper, but it's certainly a very important area of future research. Mm. Now, now the cost of monitoring the technology, of course, is there as well. Um, who should essentially be paying for this? Well, again, that's a very interesting study. So traditionally, local governments have provided their own monitoring as a form of public good. But increasingly, we're actually seeing private citizens installing their own very low cost, cheap air quality monitors and uploading that data. So for example, websites like Purple Air now contain maps based on pollution measurements at hundreds of monitors in a city, whereas the local public monitoring network may have very few monitors. 
So for example, Sydney in Australia has approximately 20 public pollution monitors. A purple air map may have hundreds of monitors in that same city. Mm. Now, what sort of pressure, Andrea, is being put on authorities to act based on this information and this paper that you've, you've released? Well, we've actually spoken uh, a little bit to the US Department of State who were very interested in the results and the effects on pollution. So there were some claims by US diplomats prior to our study that their program had led to reductions in pollution in host cities, but there was actually no evidence for that statement. Um, and so you can view our results as actually backing up this program, which is you can think of as a form of development assistance um, for of the US Department of State. And Australia, for example, could engage in similar programs in our region. So Andrea, what would you really like to achieve from this research? So the World Health Organization has been calling for increased monitoring, particularly in least developed countries who have a high pollution burden, but also have fairly low access to existing monitoring. And our results, our evidence really supports their promotion of better monitoring in these locations. So, so what's next for you and the research team from here? So we would love to do follow-up studies in particular to understand exactly what led to the reductions in pollution. So for example, it could be that there were restrictions on vehicles and uh, fossil fuel consumption of those vehicles. It could be that there was increased regulation on industry. So we'd really like to follow up exactly what led to those pollution reductions to think about more broadly, what are the costs versus the benefits of these improvements in pollution. Thank you for joining us on APAC Weekly. To stay across the important conversation shaping our future, visit us at apacnetwork.com.